Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Lisa Stone, and you're listening to Parenting Aces. Welcome to the premiere of Season 12 of the Parenting Aces podcast, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Lisa Stone, and we are kicking off this new season of episodes with a chat with Frank Giampaolo, one of my favorite parent educators and coaches out there. I'm so excited to have Frank on to talk about his new book, but more importantly, to talk about how you as tennis parents can help your child reach their potential, what you can do to make this process more enjoyable for yourself and for your child, and how we can all work together to help our kids reach their dreams and goals. So I'm I'm super excited to have Frank on. Before we start, I just want to give you a quick reminder. If you haven't joined Parenting Aces as a premium member, what are you waiting for? We have all sorts of perks and benefits that you can find if you go to our website, parentingaces.com, and click on the join button on the top right. Also, we've got so much stuff coming up. We're just still working on the podcast calendar for this year, but I'm thrilled with our guest list so far, and we're going to have some amazing, amazing conversations happening on the pod. So, Don't miss it. Set a reminder to check out our new episodes every week. If you don't subscribe already in your favorite podcast app, go ahead and do that now as well. And be sure to always check the show notes on parentingaces.com for any pertinent links and discount codes, et cetera, et cetera. So for now, happy 2023. Sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Coach Frank Giampaolo. Hey, Frank Giampaolo, it has been a minute since you were on the podcast, but what a great way to kick off season 12, and I'm so excited to have you on. Well, thank you so much, and, and thanks thanks for all you do for the uh, the tennis parents out there, so I I think we're finally making some headway with that uh, that topic. Yeah, I hope so, and, and we're going to jump into your new book, and I think the timing is really good for this with the Australian Open underway, and, yeah. you know, there's just so much happening in the world of tennis. The new Netflix documentary is out. I don't know if you've had a chance to watch it yet. Have you? Have you watched it? I did. I saw the first episode, and, uh, yeah, it's just very, very exciting, you know, that tennis is going to become – little more mainstream i would i would guess after this i hope so it's been really interesting kind of monitoring the chatter on twitter and and other socials and you know just kind of touching base with friends of mine that aren't tennis people to see how they're responding to it and so far i've only heard positive things i think the tennis community tends to be a little judgmental about these types of programs and movies and whatever, but the general public, as you said, it seems to be a nice way to kind of grow the sport um, and and generate some interest. And of course, timing it with the beginning of the Australian Open is brilliant. And, you know, yeah. sadly for the doc, for the series and sadly for the Australian Open and those of us who are fans, Nick Kyrgios had to pull out. So that's kind of a bummer since he was the featured player in the first episode. Yeah, that, that's that's tough, isn't it? It but, is. Uh, I'm sure he'll come back strong. And uh, yeah, it's just fun. It's a really fun just to see it all happening right now for for our game, you know. And yeah, and uh, all the racket sports, I think, are going to benefit from it. So yeah. let's go. Yeah. It's a win-win for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, so you have been working with tennis parents as not really a parent coach. I mean, you are a tennis coach. You work with some very high level junior players who've gone on to have fantastic college careers, professional careers, but you've always 
kind of had this angle of the parent is a really important part of the process here, and therefore the parent needs educating so that we can all work together to help these kids reach their potential, which of course is right in line with what we do here at Parenting Aces. So is it okay if we kind of jump into some questions and and really tap into your expertise of 30 years being on the ground with the players and parents? Yeah, that'd be terrific. We'll go for it. And yeah, my background is pretty much just, you know, in the trenches. Uh, as a coach for about 10, 12 years, and then I did become, you know, I did become a tennis parent and I, uh, and my daughter did well. She was uh, number one in the nation and about 250 on the pro tours by 15 years old and played the U S open a couple times. And um, so I've seen that angle and that's kind of why I took this whole approach about, man, somebody has to really try to educate the parents because they can unknowingly, you know, sabotage this whole process. So yeah, that's why I jumped in. That's been about 15 years ago now, but. Right. uh, Well, and I think we have to kind of preface this whole conversation by saying that you and I both come at the parent education piece with the mindset of parents are just trying to do the best they can for their mm-hmm. kids. And for the most part, and, and they're the very rare exceptions, of course, but for the most part, everything parents are doing comes from a place of love and caring yeah. and support. Parents screw up just like everybody screws up. I talk all the time about the the mistakes I made with my own kid through this journey. So I think, you know, understanding that the goal here isn't to help parents be perfect. It's just to help them really be aware of the impact of their, their words, their actions, their emotions on their child and learn how to, you know, maybe make a tiny shift in order to help the process go a little more smoothly. We're not looking for these giant leaps and bounds, but it's, it's small changes that can have big impacts. Yeah, for sure. Uh, The mindset, right? So that's, yeah. Okay. Well, so let's start out. Um, There's, there's a lot of chatter in the youth sports arena about early specialization and Mm. multi-sport athletes and you know when is the right time to choose your one sport to specialize in what do you think about that or is there a perfect age or are you looking at stages of development how do you help families determine what their kids should be involved in and when they need to you know kind of shift that focus into one area only yeah, no, great, great topic. Um, you know, from from my end, I think that as coaches and parents, um, we should avoid trying to say always and never, always do this or never do that. And and that's one of the topics here in this situation is that everybody's different. Everybody has their own unique pathway. But I found after, you know, 35 years now that um, – it's a little bit detrimental to the athlete to only play tennis from, you know, the age of four, five, six, which we see a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's a lot of overuse injuries. There's, there's even mental, emotional burnout that might come into play. But um, to me, the, the, the athletes that do play basketball, soccer, the type of sports that are, um, where you need quick cognitive processing or it's things are changing every second. Mm-hmm. You got to make quick decisions. And I think that's really big for a tennis player that um, their overall athleticism is going to increase a ton. If they walked into the sport, having some, some skills, athletics, athleticism skills. So that's my take on it. Really get into a bunch of sports and uh, learn how to be a great athlete. Um, and then tennis is so much easier. And then at what age or stage of development do you advise that it's time to just narrow that focus? Well, if they want to be a, 
you know, a high performance tennis player to me, which is somebody that wants to play college ball or even maybe has, you know, the dream of being a professional tennis player. If they're high performance, I think 12 or 13 years old is when they probably want to stop playing the other sports. Um, but, uh, you know, I know some kids that played other sports till 15 or 16 and they were fine. So, well, and, and let's clarify, when you say stop playing other sports, you're referring to playing them at a competitive level where they're, you know, yeah. maybe training multiple days a week, you know, going to competitions on weekends or whatever. It doesn't mean you can't go out and play a pickup game of basketball or go out on the weekend and kick around the soccer ball with your buddies and, you know, have yeah. a recreational game. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just in this, in this day and age, probably by the age of 12 or 13, if they want to be high performance in any sport and, and you know, that if it, if an athlete is going to be high performance in anything nowadays, it's a job. Yeah. It's tough. Yeah, it so. is. It is. You've written so many books and they are so useful and, and we'll have links to your books in the show notes on parentingaces.com for those who don't yet own them. But um, one of the things you refer to quite often, not only in your books, but when you do workshops for parents and players is the hardware and the software mm -hmm. of the player. Can you talk about what you mean by that? Yeah. Um if we look at our athletes the same way we look at our computers or our cell phones, we need hardware and software to work seamlessly together. And, and that's a big key with tennis players as well. To me, the hardware is the, the strokes and the athleticism. So the tool belt of all the strokes, athleticism. Software, though, is more of the mental emotional skills. And to me, the mental skills are kind of the X's and O's of strategies, tactics, knowing who you are, knowing your best weapons at play, putting together a script of patterns that really exposes your strengths. That's huge. A lot of, a lot of athletes, even, uh, even high-performance athletes, don't really know their best plays and patterns. And so that's the mental game. I think that's important. And then the last component is the, the emotional side, which is who can handle stress. And who can who can uh, handle things like choking and panicking, which we all do, but there are ways to get over it. Um, choking, panicking, nervousness, closing out leads, handling cheaters. I mean, that list goes on and on. And what I've what I've found in the past 20 years is if athletes only work on the hardware, which is what most coaches work, coaches work on, they're working on just strokes and athleticism, that gets them to a certain level. But now they cannot rise past that level until they start to develop the software skills, which is mental and emotional. So, right. yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting because we talk about the mental side and the physical side, right? Typically, those are that's the divider. But yeah. the mental side encompasses so many different aspects. It's tactics. It's mindset. It's motivation. It's a, being able to calm yourself. I mean, there's so many different pieces of that side of things. And it is a shame that more coaches aren't working on that side of it on a more regular basis with their players, because oh. as you and I are both very aware, as kids get older and kind of move up the ranks of the competitive you know, pathway, the margins become slimmer and slimmer between who wins the match and who loses the match. The athleticism is typically there once you reach a certain level. The fitness is there. The stroke production is there. So oftentimes it comes down to that mental side, you know, the the tactical piece, the the mental toughness piece, the the ability to stay in the moment and all of that. So um, if, if we get, you know, only one message across in this podcast, Frank, I'd, I'd really like parents to understand that they need to provide opportunities, whether it's working with a professional or 
otherwise for their children to develop these soft skills that go into making a complete player. Yeah, right on. And right on the money. Uh, and, and parents, if I would give some advice too, if the coaches are not working on, um, you know, the, the other side, the software side, maybe that's something that you can jump into. I mean, a lot of parents maybe don't have the tennis background to teach strokes and athleticism, but they usually understand their child's behavior and how they react. And almost always kids react the same way the parents react. It's it's modeling from the parents, right? So, um, yeah, software is huge. I spend most of my day, every day, working on software with, with athletes. And we do it a lot with just on Zoom. We just... A lot of athletes nowadays, they, they videotape their matches. We watch their matches on Zoom, and we talk about all the software issues. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it could be anything from what's the cause of their errors. Is it poor form or is it really reckless shot selection? It could be in-between point routines and rituals, which you know that's really big. Um, Parents should pay attention to the fact that the hardware, when players are out on the court in a match, a point is maybe four or five seconds long. So they're doing hardware for five seconds. Then they do software for, they get 20, 25 seconds. Right. Software. And then five seconds for the hardware. So it, it behooves us to work on the software because this is where all the problem solving and the paying attention, like, self-awareness, uh, opponent awareness, or score management. All these issues take place in between. So we have to really think about the match like there's three performances. There's the the point that they're playing with their patterns. Then there's the in-between point rituals and routines. That's that's a performance. Mm-hmm. Even when they sit down, they, they have a performance. They have to hit certain certain goals when they sit down and do changeovers. So yeah. it's all coming around though. It's, it's becoming very, very popular now with a lot of the, uh, the college coaches. I just talked to a couple of college coaches this morning and they're really into teaching the software now. So it's going to trickle down. That's good. That's a good thing. You know, you, you talked about videotaping matches and watching that. And, and I know you talk about this a lot, especially in your book, prepare for pressure. Um, what is something that juniors can learn from videotaping their matches? And, you know, what is something that most of them aren't doing, you know, in terms of videotaping their matches? Because from from where I sit, you know, video doesn't lie. So um, when you video a match, even if the only person to watch that video is the player, him or herself, they're going to see things, not only, as you said, in their technique, but in their behavior, in their body language, in their facial expression, that should be a learning opportunity for them. Yeah, right on. Um, I think it's important that as parents, we we try to motivate the, the uh, growth mindset, right, instead of a fixed mindset. Sure. That's big. And a lot of, a lot of kids... Um, they don't even really understand yet how much they could learn and how much they can improve just by watching their matches with a high IQ coach. It's just so, so meaningful. Um, their decision-making is, is right there, right at the forefront. And you know, when they take lessons with coaches, you know, like maybe on a Friday, the coach has them do a certain drill and the coach would say, okay, forehand approach, come in, volley overhead and the coach tells them what to do the coach tells them where to hit now they get into a match and they have to make their own decisions and now all of a sudden you know the s hits the fan because they just can't (laughs) make decisions really they're not used to it yeah reactions how are they reacting to pressure how are they reacting to stress how are they reacting to hardships that's something that's really important to see because you know it's not just the one point that somebody maybe hooked you on, but it's also how they pulled you into that drama. And now you lost the last three games because you're still worried about the past drama. 
And the old analogy is, um, do you die when a poisonous snake bites you? And really the answer is no, you, you die from the poison coursing through your veins for the next six, seven, eight hours that kills you. Right. And the same thing with our kids, right? They, it's how they linger and how they react. So, yeah, yeah I really do like the idea, but nowadays it's so easy. You can do it obviously online like this and. Right. Yeah. There's no excuse anymore. I mean, it's not a cost issue anymore. Everybody has a smartphone. All you have to do is stick it up on the fence and, hit record, you know, we've talked endlessly with tech companies like Swing Vision and other companies Mm -hmm. that provide great ways to utilize the video to break it down and things like that. So there really is no excuse anymore. You mentioned, though, Frank, a high IQ coach. Mm -hmm. I want to dig into that a little bit because one of the biggest challenges for a lot of families that don't live in tennis meccas like Southern California is finding what I'm assuming you're calling a high IQ coach, meaning somebody who knows the game from many different angles, not only knows it and can play it, but can teach it. And more importantly, can analyze the player in front of them in the moment and gear a lesson to where that player is on that day? Well, the share of the high IQ coach is somebody that can really get into the, the athlete's world as opposed to the old school coaches that demand the athlete gets into their world. Mm. And so nowadays it's a whole different type of angle. And so that's where we would talk about things like um, understanding how a, a player is, is wired, asking a lot of questions versus telling. Um, to me, the high IQ coach is always asking the athlete questions as opposed to telling them what to do. They're asking them, what do you think you should have done? What would have been a better choice? And getting the athlete used to making their own decisions and um, – that's pretty big. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want your children to make better decisions on court, have them, a great example is have them lead the way next time you travel. When you travel, have them navigate and they have to find the airport and they have to find the parking and they have to find the uh, American Airlines uh, counter. Now they have to go find the gate. And when you get off, you know, get on the plane, they got to find the seat make them find baggage claim and so on. And the more the kids are used to doing that themselves, the more they get used to problem solving. So yeah, that's a I high, love that. the tennis parent, that's a high IQ tennis parent too, is the one that's yeah. not always telling you what you're doing wrong, but showing you what you're doing correctly. And that's something that I've heard a lot from different coaches. I'm lucky now in Southern Cal, uh, I get to do the USTA, the high performance with, Paul Anacone, and he's obviously, you know, just a genius coach. And he told the story last week about, I'm going to share his story, but he was top, I think almost top 10 in the world back in the 80s. And then other coaches got involved and they said, now we got to work on all these weaknesses of yours. So instead of him working on his strengths, which was capture the net and get in, he basically left his strengths go for a few months, worked on all the other shots that he didn't have, and his ranking went from 10 to like 38. Mm. And uh, so that's something really big with the high IQ coaches that know the strengths of the athlete and get them to run plays and patterns to expose the strengths. And don't worry about having the complete package, you know, a thousand percent, because even the top pros don't. Right. If we talk, you know, like even like the players like you were talking about with Kyrgios, we can find maybe mental or emotional flaws, we could say, in his game. We can find stroke mechanical flaws in a lot of the pros on tour. Yeah. But they know how to win with what they have. Yeah. Which yeah. is pretty cool. That is very cool. Yeah. You have, you have this other book, Soft Science of Tennis. Like I said, you've written a million books. Um, but one of the things that you talk about in that one is personality profiling. And I've heard you talk about this quite a bit as well. 
what is personality profiling and why do you feel this is such an important piece of the junior development puzzle? Well, it it helps athletes um, understand themselves. It helps athletes understand their doubles partners and their coaches. It helps coaches understand how the athletes are wired. It helps parents even understand how their own kids are wired. Parents think that they really know their kids, but they typically don't until they start That's to die. That's a die. terrible thought. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is for sure. Yeah. But then you start diving into things like, how is your kid wired? How is his, what's his brain type? Uh, and we can get into it a little bit if you want to, but let's go through just the basics of like a Myers-Briggs type indicator because that really pays off when you're starting to get your kids to play solid tennis. Are they more introverted or extroverted? Um, do they love to be in big groups of people and be in group clinics? Or would they rather, would they thrive a little bit more maybe in a, a quiet private setting? Uh, are they more sensates or intuitives? And sensates are people that want all the facts before they make decisions. Intuitive people want to use their gut instincts and try it first, analyze second. Mm. That's big if we're coaching kids. That's yeah. what I mean by we have to get into their world. We have to find out how they're wired. Uh, are they more thinkers or feelers? Another category. And thinkers tend to impersonalize situations. They say what's logical and truthful to them, even though it might hurt somebody's feelings. They just say what they feel is the truth, even though it might not be tactful. Mm-hmm. Feelers are people that want harmony, you know, and they want to get along with everybody. And feelers tend to have a lot of trouble with gamesmanship and, and cheaters because they don't understand why somebody would do that because we're all supposed to be friends out here. And and uh, the last category is more judgers and perceivers. And judgers are the kind of personality profile that they want to make a list. Rules and laws apply, and everybody should pay attention to that. Everybody should be doing it correctly. Even if sometimes what I'm doing now, I'm doing the USGA, the 10 and under. And you can see a little girl that's eight years old. We're talking about doing a certain drill. And she can look over four courts late over there. And she goes, well, Kelly's not doing it right over there. That's <laughs> the judger. She's she's paying attention to all that stuff. And and the, the last is uh, perceivers. Perceivers are found in the future. And what I mean by that is, even though they're sitting here in a certain situation with us, their brain is already thinking about what's coming next. Mm. So perceivers in tennis typically can get a good 5-2 lead, and now they're already thinking about where's the trophy going to go in my room? What's my ranking going to go to? What are my friends going to say? What are my parents going to say? And now next thing they know, it's a 5-5 dogfight because they're not, they're not thinking about the patterns in place to win the match. They're already thinking about the trophy and the rankings. And so anyway, I, I think it's really important if parents haven't done that, if coaches haven't done it, go online, go online to personality profiling and take some of the free quizzes, try to figure out how you're wired. Why do you think the way you think? Why do you do what you do and act the way you act? Um, and I would even say this would be a valuable tool for parents to do themselves, you know, in addition to the kids doing it. Oh, absolutely. And uh, understand where the potential conflicts might be, you yes. know, so that you can strategize on how to avoid those situations or manage them more effectively. Yeah. For parents, I think they have to understand that their kids are are probably not wired like they are. So they're going to make decisions differently. And it's not like they're being a jerk or they're being, um, you know, a bad child, but they're just not wired the same way you are. And that's, that's meaningful. I think for, for me personally, when I first started doing this with Vic Braden 25 years ago, I went through personality profiling with my father and I'll give you an example. I'm a, I'm an extrovert. I love being around people. He's an introvert. <laughs> he can sit at home in his office all day and be totally happy. He's a sensei. He wants to research everything first. I'm intuitive. So with me, if I, I see a car that I like, I go, that's cool. I want it in silver. And I, I go buy that car in silver. And all I care about is where do I put the gas in? 
I've had a car now for six years. I've never opened the hood. I'm pretty <laughs> sure there's an engine, but I'm not positive. <laughs> but he's a thinker. I'm a feeler. He's a judger with all the rules and laws, and I'm a perceiver. So after going through it, he apologizes to me because you know what I I raised you wrong. I tried to make you be like me. I tried to make you be an engineer, the more of the military background, and you're not wired like that. And and that was the first time he told me he loved me and he apologized for how he tried to raise me to be like him. Wow. And to me, it's it's emotional to this day. And yeah. that parents, yeah, if you want to avoid a lot of conflicts, like Lisa, like you're saying. Get into personality profiling a little bit, and you'll see maybe you'll have two children, and they're wired totally different. Yeah. I've got three, and they're all very different from each other, so yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Um, I want to kind of backtrack a little bit. We were talking about early specialization at the beginning of the conversation, and and one of the things that you talk a little bit about is the 168-hour analysis Um, detecting how many hours an athlete needs to put toward their tennis development. What is that? How'd Um, you come up with that number? Well, it's uh, 168 hours is just 24 hours a day times seven days, right? So we all get 168. 168 hours a week is what we all get. And even when I have high-performance athletes, um, I have them start off with a customized evaluation session this is one of the things, because a lot of the athletes say, man, I don't have time to train. I'm so busy. I'm just swamped. And, and everybody feels like they are busy. Mm-hmm. So anyway, we take the 168. Then we start to subtract some of the important elements of their week. So here's an example, maybe. Um, they say an athlete likes to sleep eight hours a night. So eight times seven, 56 hours, right? Let's say they go to school from like seven to three five days a week, so it's about 30 hours. Homework is about 10. Uh, piano or guitar lessons is about four. So that that comes down to about 100 hours that they really are busy. But now they have 68 hours free. Um, with high-performance players, we try to get them to start off training, to me, depending on the age, but as they get a little bit older, it's like 15, 20 hours a week. And a lot of kids, they're, I had a couple of kids just uh, last week. They're training about 10 hours a week, and they think they're going to play, you know, D1 tennis. Mm. And that's probably not going to cut it because the foreigners that are getting all the scholarships are playing 30 to 40 hours a week. And, and it's really sports science, too. They're, they're training serious. They're right. doing video analysis on on everything. I know every joint of their body. I mean, the things that they're doing is, uh, it's right on the money in other countries. So. And let's be clear. It's not 30 hours of on court hitting tennis balls that you're talking about. It's 30 hours a week devoted to their tennis development, whether that's reading video analysis, working on mental skills, being in the gym, being on the track, being on the court. Yeah. A great way to, um, for, for junior players to kind of stay on that type of a track is to understand, understand the, uh, like the school methodology of what are the tennis classes they should try to be doing every week. So, for example, like a, a top 14-year-old kid, number one, number one in Florida, um, when I was working with him last a couple months ago now. Here, mm-hmm. Here's his developmental plan in a week. I'll give you an example. Three hours in the gym doing weight training, push-ups, sit-ups, medicine ball. Three, three hours, hours a week. Three, yeah. A week, yeah. Yeah. And then three hours of cardio. So speed, agility, stamina, endurance. That's a separate three. So already six, mm-hmm. not even touching a racket. And then a few hours he had of primary and secondary stroke development he was working on things like swing volleys and slice backhands, drop volleys, some of those secondary stroke tools. Mm-hmm. Um, pattern reps was two or three hours a week. Practice sets was six, seven hours a week of playing sets. 
And I think that's one of the missing. Say that one more time, because this is one of my biggest, biggest issues in junior Uh, tennis since I've been doing parenting aces is the lack of time devoted to playing tennis, playing sets. Yeah. It's this guy was doing six or seven hours, which if you think about it in these terms, if, if we're asking our kids, if we think our kids are going to win a 64 draw event, that means they're going to play a couple sets and they're on a 64, you know, two sets and then maybe a super tiebreaker. They're on a 32, right? And then we go to the round of 16 quarter semis finals at the end of a three or four day tournament. They're playing 15 sets. Yeah. We have parents that think their kids should be winning tournaments, and those kids are doing maybe one set a week. And it ain't going to happen. If that. If that. I mean, there's so many kids that are not playing practice sets at all. Their only match play comes at a tournament that they've paid an entry fee for. The parents are taking off work. You know, maybe they've had to travel. Yes. And then, you know, we hear how expensive the sport is. It doesn't have to be that way. No, it doesn't at all. Um, I think you're right on the money. We maybe have to teach our kids to maybe network a little bit more at tournament sites. And so not before they play, but after they play. Right. They got to walk the site. They got to give compliments to players. They've got to befriend players. They got to get to me. Every one of my athletes has to come home with three new phone numbers every tournament because they need practice partners. They need new doubles partners. And um, yeah, that's a big, that's a big part of what the high, the high performance top kids do that maybe the intermediate kids don't do is. And this is the software side, tying all of this back together, right? This is developing the skills to go up to somebody that you don't know, or yep. maybe you've just competed against, and to put that aside and say, hey, you know, can can we swap phone numbers or, you know, let's follow each other on TikTok so we can get in touch about hitting during the week? Absolutely. Um, I don't think you necessarily have to like the person to play practice sets with them, whether it's male or female. Right. If it's a good practice situation, um, it's also really meaningful to practice people that are practice with people that are ranked lower than you. Yes. And a lot of people don't allow that, which is silly, because this is how our kids are going to develop plays and patterns that they're not comfortable with yet. Um, that's important. So also, I think it's important, too, when our players play against practice partners that are ranked a little bit lower, as long as they tell them first, they can say, you know, Hey, look, I'm going to play my B plan today, if that's okay. And, and then our kids can just practice going to the net the whole time mm-hmm. or being consistent or whatever you think their contingency plans are. But yeah, our kids don't do that enough. No. So that's big. Yeah. And kind of, you know, going along with that, you, you always say practice in the manner you're expected to perform And, and so how do we get our kids to put themselves in that place of feeling the pressure of competition when it's just a practice? Well, when I do my um, evaluation sessions, we, uh, another little like mantra is, do you need more avoidance or exposure to whatever the topic is? So we go through multiple topics whether it's physical mental emotional and anything that they feel they have trouble with it could be i don't like playing in the morning i don't like playing at night i don't like playing on clay i don't like playing in wind i don't like playing pushers we say okay what do you think you need avoidance or exposure and then they think about it for a second and even the nine-year-olds go yeah i think i need more exposure yeah and and they get it. So we make a list of the things that they have to work on, things they're not comfortable with. It could be capturing the net. If we have two players that need exposure, getting to the net more, we would have them play stats. And if anybody can go in and knock off a volley or an overhead, 
or a swing volley. If they can knock off a winner, they win the whole game on that one point. Mm -hmm. So it motivates them just to get in and handle the fear. And, you know, with, with younger kids, we talk about just pretend that you're a fireman and you have to run towards the fire. You can't run away from the fire. You got to be able to run towards your fear. If you're going to be good at tennis and close out matches that are fearful, you got to be able to run into the fire. And uh, that's one of the things I talk about a little bit more and more in, in the new book is how to do that, how to run towards the fire. Um, and it's weird, but they have to learn how to die a little. Mm. When they run in and attack, they're going to lose some. But if they're winning two out of three, they're going to, they're going to win the match. So yeah. if they can die a little bit, if they can say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to blow it 33%. But as long as I'm winning two out of three, I'm still going to win the match. Yeah. Now they have the right mindset and they can attack throughout the whole match. But what do most kids do? You know, you've heard it. They get a lead. Then they start changing their winning game to a careful game, right? Like, okay, don't blow it. Be careful now. Yeah, they save, and and that's exactly what they, they play be. not to lose instead of playing to win. Yeah, yeah. So running towards winning instead of running away from it, you know. I like, but that. it's all part of the mental emotional side. So that's kind of For what sure. we're, you know, and that's a big that's a big topic now. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, you just wrote a whole new book about it, the psychology of tennis parenting, and those of you listening or watching this episode, if you are a free or premium member of Parenting Aces, you received your free ebook and your email inbox this past week. So um, hope you'll take a look at that. But, you know, there's so many stresses around being a tennis parent. And I mean, you know, we talk about the emotional piece, but also the financial piece, the time part of it. What should parents be focused on in order to help their kids reach their full potential? Well, to me, if we keep that super simple, it's it's just growth. We want them to, every week, they want them to be a better player than they were the last week. And so I don't think that's, it's any one certain topic. Some, some athletes and their parents, they have to work on nutrition and hydration for a while. Um, the player I was just working with, it's a kind of a little skinny guy, but uh, he's 14 as well. He averages about 1,500 calories intake, but he burns over 3,000 calories a day. Yeah. And this is another Florida player I work with. Tough to put on they're, weight when when you're burning more than you're taking in. Yeah, and they're wondering <laughs> why he's tall and he's not putting on any muscle and he's not getting bigger and stronger. So we would actually have him take a picture of every meal before he starts to take a bite. And then he has to take a picture when he's done eating. So sometimes it, it gets a little bit tricky, but you know, he might order a big plate of spaghetti and meatballs, which looks like a ton of calories. Mm. But then we look at the picture afterwards when he's done eating and he only took four bites. The mm. gum full. So yeah, what they work on is very customized, right? To to each family. Sure. Uh, but I think as long as they're improving and growing every week, that's amazing. I mean, if they just improve 1% a week, that's huge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one, of the thing, one of the things that parents can do is just keep making the athlete accountable. They have to be the ones that are, packing their own bags, getting their nutrition and hydration ready for practice and for tournaments. Um, they have to be the ones that are regripping their rackets and getting their rackets strung if they don't have their own stringer in their garage. Um, there's so many topics like that. Um, but yeah, for me, that's kind of why I decided that when I work with players, I, I start with this evaluation package because we have to really figure out the strengths and weaknesses and the holes in their game. If anytime the parents have issues though, I think we can pretty much help them along their journey just by identifying what the issues are. And uh, 
a lot of times with the parents, what they can really do to help is help teach life skills. So the laundry list of life skills, and if you don't know what they are, well, we talk about them a lot in the new book, but perseverance, resiliency, time management, focus ability, all these things are going to help your kids win matches. And parents can help the kids develop all these skills. To me, one of the things I do with the evaluation is they have to self-grade from one to 10, 20 life skills like that. Anything they grade as six or less, they have to Google that term, write out their own definition of what it means to them and how they're going to improve it. And so we have the kids work on software, Mm. life skills, positive character traits, a moral compass for some families. Right. You know, you know how it is. Some sometimes with the juniors, they they're cheating out there and they're really displaying pretty poor, you know, gamesmanship. But once you get deeply into it, they do it because they're scared of their parents. Mm. And it happens a lot. They go, I'm gonna get screamed out for four hours if I lose this match. So um yeah. that's why they develop that type of gamesmanship. There was a there was a a, a Russian girl I remember talking to. When I was at a, I was at an ITF on St. Vincent. This is, this is a year or so ago. She says if she doesn't win, she gets kicked off the 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 Russian team, the traveling team, and she has to go home and and live in a one bedroom apartment with like six brothers and sisters. So, she, wow. yeah. So it, once we get into their their world, it's it's difficult for some of those people. Um, that's a good life lesson too with parents is if people are being mean, we have to get into their world a little bit and figure out why. Yeah. Yeah. So, What's going on behind the scenes that, that we don't, yeah, that's don't know and understand for sure. Yeah. So from the parent side of things, I mean, we all know it's, it's difficult to be a tennis parent. It's difficult to be a parent period, but when you have a child who is pursuing a dream, pursuing a passion at a high level, the stress is just enormous. And again, it's, you know, it's time stress, it's financial stress, it's interpersonal stress. How do we help parents kind of, take a step back. I mean, this has kind of been what I've been working on for the past almost 13 years, helping the parents take a step back, take a breath and separate themselves from what their child is working toward, what their child is doing on a day-to-day basis. And like you said, you know, hold the children accountable for the work that needs to be done don't take that on yourself as a parent. Yes. Well, I think we, people that are in the, in the sport and know tennis parents, we know that if we want the kids to be more than hobbyists, for me, a hobbyist is a junior that plays high school, mm-hmm. which is great. I love it when, when players do that. And I don't think that being a high performance top, top college player or pro. I don't think that's a great life for most people. Right. That life is, it's horrible. It's so difficult. Unless you're top, you know, 50 in the world, then, then of course it's all the glamour. But I think as parents, though, we have to understand that if we want our kids to be high performance, we have to be more than hobbyists as well. We have to understand the system. We can't be hobbyist tennis parents and occasionally dabble, have the kid take one lesson a week or and then a clinic a week and, and then assume the kid's going to be a pro on the tour. I think we got to do a little reality check and the parents have to be high performance tennis parents as well. Um, that doesn't start- mean, though, I want to just clarify, that doesn't mean taking over everything. That doesn't mean inserting yourself in every aspect of your child's tennis life. Yeah, it means understanding your role, staying yeah. in your lane and, and doing your job at a high level. Yeah. I think managing the athlete and the entourage of coaches, the best managers, they don't micromanage. Right. They're not hanging on the, the fence when a, 
when their kid's doing a tennis lesson. And that's important. Stay in the car. Let the kid take the lesson with the with the coach. If if you're a tennis parent that loves to watch tournament play, take notes, do some charting, do stats, but don't get in the car after the match and start to berate your child about all the things he didn't do correctly. Just send all your notes to the coach. Mm. Say, hey, when you have time, here's some of the observations that I saw. And I think that would be really meaningful. Um, I don't think parents understand, too, that there's um, something called channel capacity where the human brain can't solve two complicated tasks simultaneously. So we see it all the time. The, the coach might be working on the ball toss of a serve with an athlete and the parents hanging on the fence saying, what about his knee bend? He's not doing his pinpoint. He's his left hand's not tucking in. And all of a sudden the child wants to please the parent and listen to them, but also wants to work on what the coach is working on. Right. And now the whole lesson is sabotaged because now the child can't do two things simultaneously. It's very tough to do to focus on two things like that. Sure. So anyway, it's, it's, it, we're better off as parents to understand the job descriptions of all of our coaches. And our kids, if they are high performance, they should have like a, a technical coach that knows form and mechanics. They should have hitters, which are very inexpensive, like college players that can play sets. Mm-hmm. If, if you have trouble getting match play for your children, but they're in academies and clinics a lot, Take the $25 an hour that you're playing, you're paying the academy for the kids to just rally cross court back and forth all day. Take that 25 bucks an hour, pay a college kid and have them play a match and have them role play. So you want to ask the college kid to be the most annoying moonball pusher retriever possible. (laughs) If your kid can't play a moonball pusher, that's what I mean by exposure or avoidance, right? Right. And uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of ways to navigate smarter. And I think that's why educating the parents is really meaningful that they can save so much money and so much time and they can save so many tears if, if they know what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) All right. We're down to our last few minutes and um, we're going to do a little quick Q and a thing. Okay. So you're going to give me your preference for, Mm. I'm going to give you two words and you're going to give me your preference and tell me why you chose that thing. Okay. Okay. Let's go. All right. First one, avoidance versus exposure. Okay. Yeah. Good. So I know we talked about that a little bit earlier. Yeah. Figure out anything that your children don't want to do in the realms of competitive tennis and then they need more exposure. So that would be a mantra for the parents. Do so you need more awareness or exposure? Yeah, love it. Performance goals or outcome goals? Mm. They're both important, but I think performance goals are, are even more important. So that would be things like, if it's a match play performance, simple. Serve to the opponent's weaker side. Like a stat, we know that... of most winners comes off the the player's forehand. So maybe not serving a second serve to their forehand, that could be a wonderful performance goal. It's it's hard to do, though, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Rivals, good or bad? Great. Even better than good. Great. You need rivals. I think it's hugely important. And uh, you don't need to make them your enemy. If you kind of remember back at the Labor Cup with uh, Rafa and Roger Federer crying together, yeah, major rivals pushed each other like mad, but you don't have to hate each other. Yeah, love that. What's more painful, changing or losing? For most athletes nowadays, it's changing. Change is way more powerful. They would rather keep on doing things their old way and avoid things, avoidance, sweep it under the rug, don't fix things, go back to just rallying to each other, avoidance. They'd rather do that, um, and they're okay with losing some matches. Mm. And so, yeah, I think it's big that we have to get people to realize that 
change is the most important thing that they have to work on. Necessary for sure. No. All right. With Australian open underway, watching tennis on TV, good or bad? Very good. Especially if you can kind of identify topics, like look at one athlete's feet, watch their tennis shoes, count the number of steps they take in between like every point and during every point, count the steps. And then when you watch your own video, count your steps. Mm. And it's just, it's amazing the difference. Even I just had a coach friend of mine send a video of Rafa on the practice court at the Australian Open a couple of days ago. And he is moving his feet like a madman. He's unreal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then you show, we, we see most of our athletes and they're taking three or four steps for every 12 that a pro take. So yeah. footwork, yeah. try to watch patterns, like one, two punches. A, a good example of that, a Rafa example, at Indian Wells with some of the high performance kids, I had them at the stadium and we were charting pattern play. So Rafael Nadal on the ad side, because he's lefty, he did slice out wide to Ryan Harrison, and then a he inside out lefty four. <laughs> 84% of the time on the ad side, he did the exact same pattern because it worked two out of three. And if it works two out of three, you win. Yeah. Yeah. All right. There's next two. one. Losing or getting beat? Hmm. I think you're losing a match if you're gifting away points. You're getting beat if the opponent um, is outplaying you. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something to identify for most juniors. When a point is over and they lose the point, did they gift it away or did the other person earn it? And if they earned it, that's fine. Walk away. Mm -hmm. If they gifted it away, then you might need to think about that a little bit. I like it. Overthinking or underthinking? Mm. I'd rather I would rather players underthink than overthink. Some of the best players that I've without mentioning any names, some of the best players that I've worked with are not the sharpest tool in the shed. <laughs> you, you, I mean as a coach. Are you just, allowed to say that? <laughs> yeah, no. Well, as long as they don't say their name. Yeah. <laughs> I'm but yeah, you say things like, look, just serve to the backhand and attack short balls and hit hunt forehands. And they go, okay. And that's what they do. Yeah. And they win and win and win and win. Then you get over other kids and you tell them to do the same three things. And they're like, well, yeah, well, it's Tuesday and the wind is blowing north to south at 32 miles an hour. And they're overthinking so much. Yeah. I think they have to dummy up. Got it. All right. Yeah. Last one. Tennis parents, an essential part of the athlete's team or a pain in the you-know-what? Yeah. No, I think they're essential. Essential, for sure. Um, if you don't have a great tennis parent that's overseeing the journey, I don't even think you you have much of a chance. So, yeah, tennis Amen parents. Amen to that. Man, we need them. And we, but we just need to educate them earlier and – get them to uh, enjoy this ride a little bit more. And I think the more they're educated on the process, the more they're going to enjoy it. It's going to be way less stressful. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Well, Frank, thanks so much for chatting with us. If people want yeah. to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, we'll have email? links in the show notes. Yeah, no, the links are great. FGSA at earthlink.net is my email. Uh, but yeah, just find, hit me up on those links and uh, we can chat from, you know, no matter where you are. If you have a question, just shoot me a call or an email. Okay. Awesome. And you're very active on social media. So we'll include your social links too. And hope everybody starts following you if they're not already, but great to see you. And yeah. I hope we'll see each other in person a lot more in 2023. I know. I agree. All right. Yeah. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care, Frank. Bye. Bye. To my listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. We will catch you next time on Parenting Aces. I'm Lisa Stone, and you've been listening to the Parenting Aces podcast. For tennis parents, by a tennis parent. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us and write a review on iTunes. For more information on navigating the junior and college tennis journey, 
please visit us online at parentingaces.com. Thanks for tuning in and sharing us with your tennis community.